Father, we pray that you would send your Spirit to speak into our souls your word of life. Father, I thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, and I pray, Lord God, that you would uh, help us, Lord God, this morning as we bring it to conclusion, because the picture is so beautiful, Lord God, and I feel utterly inadequate to speak it. So, Lord God, through your Spirit, would you invigorate our hearts, minds, souls, our strength, that we would love you with all that we have, and that you would bring the picture together in our hearts, that we would see you and that we would surrender to you. Lord God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to preach. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Hebel of hebels, vapor of uh, vapor, breath of breath, breath of the breath, uh, says the preacher, all is breath. That was the way the book started, and now it's coming to an end. And from the very start, I've had this picture in my mind. It comes from the Chronicles of Narnia at the, at the beginning of the silver chair, Lucy meets Aslan the lion on top of a mountain by a stream and a cliff, and Aslan blows her to Narnia such that she rides on his breath. She's not striving after the wind. Uh, she's not striving for the wind, like Solomon talked about at the start of his book, but she's riding on the wind. Lewis writes, she felt frightened for only a second. Floating on the breath of the lion was so extremely comfortable. She found she could lie on her back or on her face and twist any way she pleased, just as you can in water if, if you've learned to float really well. And because she was moving at the same pace as the breath, there was no wind, and the air seemed beautifully warm. Sounds like heaven. But can you imagine if Lucy hadn't learned to trust Aslan the lion? then what felt like heaven, and literally was heaven, would have felt more like, like hell. You know, each of us, all of us are, are Lucy. Each of us is actually a manifestation of God's Word. We literally ride on His breath. And if we saw that right now, in our current state of unfaith, I imagine that we'd all just crumble in fear. In other words, we couldn't tolerate heaven much less enjoy it, like Lucy. Solomon has been telling us that Ha'adam, the man, is hebel. It's all hebel, vapor, breath. And yet he's also told us that we are to put away vexation, anxiety, or, or fear. Last week we saw that the devil keeps us in lifelong bondage through the fear of death, which produces all manner of evil. So how do you have faith and not fear? How do you choose the good and forsake the evil? I think we all assume that we need to take, well, we need to take more knowledge of good and evil so we can make good judgments and therefore justify ourselves uh, before God and be justified by God. That's why folks come to church. Preacher, give me some more of that knowledge of good and evil. Tell me what's faith. Tell me what's not faith. Tell me what's good. Tell me what's evil so I can choose the good. And when it comes to the evil, just stop it. Like this. Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No. No, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, 
yes, yes, that's it. <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most we find most people can uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. Here, here they are. Stop it! <laughs> I'm sorry. Stop it! Stop it! Yes. S T O P. New word. I T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, 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 you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. <laughs> yes. Then stop it! I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, childhood. No, no, no. No, we, 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 we don't go there. Just, just stop. So I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. You got it. Good go. Well, it's only been... It's only been three minutes, so that will be um, uh, three dollars. Well, I only have a five, so... Well, I, I, don't, I don't make change. Then I, I guess I'll take the full five minutes. Fine. All right. Well, what other uh, problems would you would you like to address? <clears throat> uh, I'm bulimic. I stick my fingers down my throat. Stop it! <laughs> Not of some kind. Don't don't do that. But I'm I'm compelled to. My mom used to call me. No no, no no. No, we, we don't go there. But I've been having this dream. No, we don't go there either. But my horoscope did say... We definitely don't go there. Just, <laughs> just stop it. What, what, what else? Well, I have self-destructive relationships with men. Stop it! <laughs> you you want to be with a man, don't you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. Well, then stop it. <laughs> don't be such a... Big baby. I wash my hands a lot. That's all right. It is? I, I wash my hands all the time. There's a lot of germs out there. Uh -huh. Yeah, don't, don't, uh, don't worry about that one. I'm afraid to drive. Well, stop it! Sometimes church kind of feels like that, right? You know... Uh, we each will be buried in a box or burned in a crematorium, and of course it's frightening. And how to stop the fear is profoundly frustrating. Not just for you, but for the preacher. How's the preacher going to get you to stop? I'm afraid to drive. Well, stop it! <laughs> how are you going to get around? Get in the car and drive, you, you kook. Stop it! You stop it! You stop it! What's, what's the problem, Kat? I don't like this. I don't like this therapy at all. You're just telling me to stop it. And, and, you, and you, don't, you don't like that? No, I don't. So you think we're, we're moving too fast, is that it? Yes. Yes, I do. All right, then let me, uh, let me uh, give you ten words that I, I think will uh, clear everything up for you. Uh, you want to you get a pad and a pencil for this one? All right. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right, here are the ten words. Stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box! Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. 
Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails. Firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The end. See the problem? Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Is Solomon the wisest man in the world saying to us, stop it? or God will bury you alive in a box. That is, take more knowledge of good and evil. Take more knowledge of good and evil so that you can make better choices and so justify yourself or God will judge you and bury you alive in a box forever without end. Most folks assume that that is exactly what Solomon is saying. Many folks argue that this is actually no longer Solomon. Some even argue that these last four verses were added to Ecclesiastes to contradict the rest of Ecclesiastes because Solomon seemed to not worry very much about the commandments. He talked far too much about eating and drinking and uh, many concubines, the joy of the sons of Adam. So someone corrected his work, so really none of it matters. Well, I suspect that Solomon is still writing and I believe it's still the Word of God written, and I believe that the word living and active is asking us to come wrestle. We cannot make sense of Him, but He is making sense of, of us. So let's do it. Let's, let's wrestle, and maybe He'll bless us. Let's read it again, and I'll make some observations that will, that will raise some questions. Don't let that freak you out. Uh, just ponder, okay? Just, just ponder. And then let's circle back and ask this uh, question. Is God telling us to have faith without fear or he'll bury us alive in a box? This is the question. What does God want from us? Really, seriously, what does he want? Ecclesiastes 12.8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Now, that's a fascinating statement if you think about it because it means this. Wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge. Knowledge may be contained in wisdom, but wisdom is more than knowledge. Knowledge that, you know, like someone could just like walk up to some tree and, and pick it and take it like fruit. In our very first sermon from Ecclesiastes, we noted how Solomon took knowledge of good and evil and everything died. He wrote, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow, vexation, anxiety, fear, Ecclesiastes 1.18. Don't make yourself too wise, or it can be translated more wise. Don't try to make yourself more wise. Why should you destroy yourself? That's 7.16. Solomon took knowledge of good and evil and everything died. But God gave wisdom, and it was literally a tree of life. That's what Solomon calls it in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 18. For Solomon, wisdom isn't just knowledge, like words in a book or laws on some page. Wisdom is a person through whom all things are created, Proverbs 8, 27. Wisdom is a lover who calls to us and romances us, Proverbs 1, 20. Wisdom romances us to enter her house, eat her bread, drink her wine, Proverbs 9, 1 and 2. Wisdom is good. But if we take her to make ourselves good, we die, and wisdom dies. In fact, the sky grows black and the earth trembles. It seems that this has already happened. And every one of us knows we will die or are dead. 
Solomon has made that very, that's what he, we preached about last week, right? He's made that very, very, very clear. Verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight or substance or matter, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails. Firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. The words are, are like goads. Now, if you believe that the Scripture is inspired such that the words are not simply the words of old Solomon, but actually the words of one shepherd. If you believe Scripture is inspired like me, you can't help but think of what Jesus said to, to, that, to that, that arrogant, puffed-up Pharisee on the road to uh, Damascus, that Pharisee named Saul. Remember, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and the wisdom of God Jesus appeared to Saul, whom we now know of as Paul. He appeared to him in burning glory and basically just scared Paul to death. And then he said this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads are sharp, pointy things like nails attached to a stick that a shepherd or a farmer would use to goad his animals forward. Saul was a Pharisee. He took words of knowledge from Scripture in order to justify himself. Later he'd write, this knowledge, the knowledge he takes, puffs up. This knowledge puffs up. It puffs up what Paul referred to as the flesh, the old man, the ego, Taking words of wisdom puffs up our ego, and yet those very words of wisdom are also goads in the hand of the shepherd. I, I puff myself up with knowledge of the law, and yet at the very same time, the words of the law, they goad me. They harass me. They drive me to despair. You've all experienced this. You take knowledge uh, to judge, and then you find out that you yourself are judged. Ugh. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected saints. They're given by one shepherd. You know, Paul wrote, it's no longer I who live, but, uh, but Christ who lives in, in me. No longer I who live. What happened to Paul? He got crucified. That's what he said. I have been crucified with Christ. The goads became nails and pinned him to the very tree from which he had taken the knowledge of good and evil. Now check this out. In Colossians 2, he describes how the body of flesh, which was a euphemism for a man's foreskin. Are you listening? He describes how the body of flesh was put off in the circumcision of Christ as if our puffed-up flesh, which keeps us separated from intimate communion with Christ and with each other, was cut away and crucified on the cross in our Lord Jesus. Christ came, like we talked about last time, to help us die to ourselves, that we might live to God and to our neighbor that we might love. So this is what Paul wrote. This knowledge that, that he takes puffs up, but love builds up, writes Paul. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. As we mentioned, there are two ways of knowing. One brings death, and the other gets you pregnant. One is something you do, it's a work. The other is something done to you. If you consent to it, it's heaven. If you don't trust, it's more like hell. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Read Ezekiel 34. The Jews longed for the coming of the one shepherd. He's the bridegroom. And ha-adam, humanity, is the bride. He's the Messiah. 
The words of the wise are like goads and, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end and of much study is a weariness of the flesh. And everyone says, Amen to that. And yet, two verses ago, Solomon just told us that he did much studying. And he wrote books one of which we are reading right now. Well, in doing so, Solomon's flesh got puffed up with knowledge of good and evil and then nailed to the very tree from which he had taken the knowledge of good and evil. He took wisdom as if it were fruit on a tree, and he got crucified. But God gave wisdom, and it was a tree of life, and Solomon rose from the dead. When Solomon used wisdom, he died. And maybe wisdom wanted him to die. But when Solomon surrendered to wisdom, he saw that wisdom was life, a tree of life. It's like he died with wisdom, and he rose with wisdom. Wisdom taught his heart to fear. And then his fears relieved. Maybe the one shepherd is wisdom. As we preach this whole series, Solomon sees wisdom, but he sees it from a distance. And he struggles to describe what he sees. He sees a slaughtered lamb standing on an altar that's also a throne that's called the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, containing the law written in stone, behind a curtain in a sanctuary that becomes a living temple, in a city that's a bride, in a creation that's entirely new. And he sees a tree in the middle of a garden. Genesis describes two trees in one spot in the middle of the garden. The Revelation describes one tree, the tree of life, in the middle of the garden. In the Gospels, Jesus is crucified on a tree in the middle of a garden and then placed in a stone box in that very same garden. Paul tells us Jesus' Messiah is the wisdom of God. Solomon tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. John tells us there is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. Are you pondering? <laughs> now let's read the two verses that sum up all of Ecclesiastes and have given us so much trouble. The end or the conclusion of the matter or the speech or the book, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of the Adam, of man. And actually, duty isn't even in the text. It's entirely supplied by the translators trying to make sense out of what Solomon is saying in, in, in Ecclesiastes. Literally translated, it reads something like this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of Adam. Solomon writes as if the Adam is not complete was not complete and is not complete, but will be complete when the Adam keeps the commandments. So we should ask, what are the commandments, right? What are, what are the commandments? Well, they're recorded in the Bible, so let's uh, read through the Bible and list them right now, okay? Number one, very first commandment, spoken to Ha-Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Well, that's an interesting commandment. How do you do that? We don't have time to get into that right now, but St. Paul writes that it refers to Christ and his church, which is his bride, who is a temple made with living stones and the new Jerusalem coming down. Next, God speaks a commandment that can be taken as, as, as a command or simply it can be taken as a statement of fact. Number two, you will surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It's such a bizarre statement. <laughs> you will not eat. 
and then they do eat. Even more bizarre. How would the Adam know that the command of God, which is the Word of God, how would he know that the Word of God is, is good if, if he doesn't have the knowledge of good? Even more bizarre still is this picture of the good hanging on a tree like fruit. Jesus said God alone is good and God is spirit. So God in flesh hanging on a tree in a garden would have to look something like, like this. Hmm. If the Adam takes the life of the good on the tree, the Adam will know evil and die. If the Adam receives the life of the good on the tree, he will know God and live. Make sense? Hey! Here's a tree. There's a tree. And here's the good. Body broken, bloodshed for you. At communion, we confess our evil and we receive God's good. Maybe that's like not a coincidence. Well, the Adam took the fruit and lost the garden. And soon we read about so many dang commandments, we just choke on all the commandments and, and die. We just get nailed by all the commandments, right? I mean, you've read, you've read the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament. We wanted, we wanted the knowledge of good and evil, and what we get is the law. A lot of it. It includes the Big Ten. That's number three, the Ten Commandments. Quoting Moses, Jesus says that they are all summed up in this. You will, not should, but will. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. You will. And of course, the story of the whole Old Testament is that we don't. No one is righteous. No, not one, writes Paul, quoting Isaiah. We all get nailed by the commandments. Theologians refer to the, the Big Ten Commandments as the moral law. It's written in stone, placed in a box uh, behind the veil in the front of the temple. The moral law is contained in what theologians call the ceremonial law, and that's number four, ritual commandments, ceremonial law. If you've read the Old Testament, you know this, right? Because how many of you have tried to read the Old Testament? It's just like pages and pages and pages of regulations about the sacrifices and the temple and the priests and the, and the ritual and, and the house that Solomon built and would go sit in, the house of mourning that would turn into a house of mirth. Modern American Christians tend to think the whole thing is just like barbaric and absurd. And we don't get the point. You see, the temple was like a theater. And the rituals were like a drama, but not an impersonal drama, an existential drama in which the worshipers participated, for they were told to identify, I think it's Samak in Hebrew, they were to lay their hands on the sacrifices and identify with the sacrifice, which would be surrendered to the judgment of God, consumed by holy fire, and then disappear. As Simeon taught us at Christmas, the sacrifices weren't only a way of cleansing what was wrong, they were a way of doing what was right. The temple was like a, a giant heart circulating blood through all creation. As we said last week, the temple was like a, a womb. It was also like a womb. And the altar and, and the curtain were like a door leading out of the womb into an entire new creation. Hey, look, there's an altar. And this tree, this tree is like a door, isn't it? Jesus said, don't think that I came to abolish the law, ceremonial, moral. Don't think I came to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. And as we read, uh, as, we already, as he already said, he, he summed up the, the whole law with one word. And that's number five. Love. John writes, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Number six, faith. Paul tells us that faith is reckoned as righteousness. That means faith completes the Adam, ha-adam. Faith makes us right. That is faith in God who is love. Faith means trust. But how do you command trust? You better believe that I love you. 
Where I'll never love you. And check this out. This is also commandment number seven. According to Richard Wormbrand, this shows up 366 times in the Bible, one for every day of the year, including uh, the leap year, just to be safe. Number seven, do not fear. Now, that's a strange one. It's a strange one even on the lips of Jesus. In Matthew 10, Jesus says this, Fear him who has the power to destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. Fear him. And he's talking about his father. And then two verses later, he says, Now fear not. <sighs> number eight, which in the Hebrew mind is like an endless number seven, an endless Sabbath. John 12, 50, Jesus says this, I know that the Father's commandment is eternal life. Well, that's kind of a nice commitment. <laughs> Fearless, faithful love that is eternal life. Wow. I thought the commandments of God were a pain in the butt, but that's a good commandment. A really, 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 really good commandment. What should be the punishment for breaking a commandment like that? You know, if my son doesn't take out the trash, you know what his, his punishment is for not taking out the trash? Taking out the trash! A lot! If you reject eternal life, wouldn't the punishment be eternal life? A lot? At first, that punishment might burn until you saw that the commandment was good. But it makes no sense to punish a hatred of faith, love, and life with an endless absence of faith, love, and life in a place you can never get out of called hell. The place you hide from the punishment, uh, the place you hide from the punishment, which is the commandment, might feel like hell like a dark box in which you hid. And being forced from that place might also feel like hell, but it would be the burning edge of heaven. Well, the commandment of God is fearless, faithful love that is eternal life. So verse 13, Solomon writes, fear God and keep his commandments, which means fear God and do not fear God. You must have eternal life. I can't do that. <laughs> That's impossible for me. I can't do Doesn't Solomon know that? Yes. He's been telling us that for 12 chapters. All we do is vanity, and all that's actually done is done by God who does everything. Chapter 11, verse 5, if you remember. All our deeds are vanity, and all of his deeds are eternal and incorruptible. This knowledge, this knowledge is what Solomon has gained and what we all gain from all our toil under the sun. Chapter 1, verse 3. I gain knowledge that God's commandment is good, but I can't do his commandment. God's commandment is eternal life, said Jesus. And then he said, I am the life. He's wisdom. He's the shepherd. He's the commandment. Solomon wrote, keep the commandments. But I can't do the commandment. The commandment must do me. That's something to ponder. Verse 13, Solomon writes, Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the completion, the fullness, the, the wholeness of the Adam. Verse 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or every deed into judgment. <sighs> Dang. Why does God judge us? I think we're all afraid to ask that question, but that's a pretty good question. Why does God judge us? Solomon has already told us that all our deeds are evil, and all of God's deeds are good. Even more, all of our evil reveals God's good, and all of our unrighteousness reveals God's righteousness, and all of our lies reveal God's truth, and all of our unfaithfulness reveals God's faithfulness. 
So why does God judge us? What does he want from us? Why does God judge us? Have you ever asked that question? Paul asked it. Romans 3, verse 3. Listen closely. Speaking of the Jews that rejected Jesus, he writes this. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true. You let him be true. Let God be true, though every man were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? Did you get that? Paul is saying that the Jews were faithless, all men are liars, and we are unrighteous, so that God can judge the world. He writes as if God's judgment is axiomatic. That means it's like it's just the given thing. It's foundational to all all other things. Last time we said God's judgment is creation. Now Paul is saying all creation was created to reveal God's judgment, and, and that means that we were consigned to disobedience so that like we could witness our own judgment. In other words, God does not judge us because we sinned. But we sinned so that God can judge us. In other words, it was no accident that God put the Adam in a garden with an evil-talking snake speaking lies and a tree in the middle of that garden that would kill the Adam if he ate of the fruit and not only kill the first Adam, but kill the last Adam, Jesus the Messiah, the wisdom of God and the judgment of God. In other words, Romans eleven thirty two, 32, Paul says it this way, God consigned all to disobedience. That he may have mercy on all. That's God's judgment. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The judgment of God. And that judgment is the foundation of all creation. And that judgment is still creating something. What is it creating? Look at what Paul quotes, the words of David in Psalm 51.4, that you, God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you, God, are judged. Is that a new thought for you? God is getting judged. And who's judging him? We are. And maybe we've already judged him. Admit it. None of you trust him completely. Or you'd do everything he said without question. None of you trust him completely. And many of us think that really he's just a big jerk. Much of the time. Maybe even most of the time. We try to hide it, but God knows it. We don't trust him. We don't trust him. And the Adam didn't trust him on the sixth day of creation. He couldn't trust that God was good because he didn't yet know what the good was. And therefore, he did not know who the good is. He couldn't yet judge, even though he tried to judge. He couldn't yet judge. And even though we still try to judge, he couldn't yet judge God's judgment. And you cannot trust God until you see that his judgment is good. You can try to trust. You can fake trust. In fact, I think that's what we do at church all the time. We fake trust, and we, th we think that's righteousness. You can try to trust. You can fake to trust, but you can't make yourself trust. We all know this because we all say this. Listen to me. Trust must be earned, right? Trust must be earned by the one who desires to be trusted. What does God want? He wants you to trust him. So what is he doing in this literally goddamned world? He's earning your trust. And he is doing so by revealing 
His judgment. He wants you to see His judgment. He reveals His judgment on a tree in a garden. When you truly see His judgment, you will judge His judgment. You will judge that it is good. And so uh, justify God. And in this way, you yourself are justified. But, but it's not your work. It's God's work. In you, it's faith. It's not something you can take from the tree. It's something that must be given from the tree. God reveals his judgment on a tree in a garden, and he is revealing it all the time. That you may be justified in your words, writes David in like, what, 1000 B.C.? That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Those are the words of King David in Psalm 51 as he confesses his sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah. David writes, against you, God, and you alone, even though Bathsheba and Uriah might have disagreed with this, but he writes this, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you, God, may be justified. In your words, and blameless in your judgment. Do you remember God's judgment of David's sin? It's in 2 Samuel 12. The son of David and Bathsheba that was conceived in their adultery, the son of David and Bathsheba died. As David uh, lay before the altar in the house of God. And then David got up, went into Bathsheba, and she got pregnant again, and this son of David lived. Do you remember his name? Solomon. And he was the great, 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 grandfather of somebody else. Do you remember his name? Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So Jesus, the wisdom of God and judgment of God, was born out of David's sin. But which came first? Which is axiomatic? Which is the foundation? David's sin or Jesus? David sinned that God might be justified in his judgment by David and you and all humanity. God's judgment was that a son of David would bear David's sin to destruction and a son of David would be the righteous fruit born out of David's sin. God's judgment is mercy. Mercy that destroys evil. And we all want it destroyed. That's why we have such a hard time forgiving. We want the evil destroyed. God's mercy, uh, it destroys the evil by filling it with the good. Jesus bears David's sin on the tree, and Jesus is the righteous fruit of David's sin given to humanity, all humanity, on the very, the very same tree. God subjected the world to futility and consigned all to disobedience that you would sin. And he could reveal his judgment of mercy, and that seeing his judgment of mercy, you would have faith. that your Father is good. It's what every dad wants. It's what I want. I want my kids to justify me by trusting my judgment. Trust means faith, and faith means just. I want them to justify me by trusting my judgment. So when they were little, I'd take them to scary movies. I'd take them camping out in scary woods in their old yellow tent so that they'd snuggle close to me, stop trusting their judgments and trust mine, so they'd stop justifying themselves and justify me with faith, so that they would enjoy me like I enjoyed them. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy only rides on the breath after she has a terrifying encounter with Aslan by a stream. She realizes that Aslan could eat her. And yet she also realizes that she'll die if she does not get to the stream that Aslan is guarding. And on top of that, she's done something really bad for which she feels profoundly guilty. Well, it turns out that Aslan knows. 
and Aslan judges, and Aslan forgives, and so Lucy trusts Aslan. And then she rides on his breath all the way to Narnia. And it's not hell. It's heaven. You know, I've actually become grateful for my kids' failures. And because this is on tape, I need to say, uh, guys, uh, you don't need to do any more failing. But I become grateful for their failures. Or Actually, you will fail. But you see, I'm also grateful for your sin. And, and I don't want you to sin, and yet I'm grateful for the sin. I'm grateful uh, for their sins, for it's in those places and at those times that they'll call me and they'll say, Dad, help me. Save me. And in those places and at those times, I can pay for their failures and I can forgive. And it's in those places and at those times that I can reveal my judgment and create their faith so that they will enjoy me like I have always enjoyed them. So what does God want? He wants you to justify him. So God has arranged all things to reveal his judgment and create your faith. Right now, God is earning your trust. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, oh, well, that's swell, Mr. Preacher Boy, because he's just doing a fine job of it because it feels like everything in my life is just shot to hell and I'm being buried alive in a box. Well, maybe this is just the beginning of God's judgment. And you're just barely beginning to see. Solomon wrote, fear is the beginning of wisdom. Perfect love casts out fear, wrote John the Beloved. That means fear is the beginning of wisdom, but wisdom is the end of fear. Every time you suffer, it's a bit like being buried alive in a box. The devil wants to keep your heart in that box. And your father, he wants to show you something in that box. I actually have a few friends that have been buried alive in a box. Each of them ritually abused. Each of them got out, or I should say their hearts got out when they realized Jesus was in the same box. I was with two of them in prayer on separate occasions when God revealed the truth. In, in visions, they opened their eyes in absolute terror, and what they saw was Jesus in the same box. I honestly think those two experiences may be the most dramatic experiences of my entire life. One friend just screamed out in joy, my blood is on his robe, and she just could not help but worship. Fear had been like transformed or metamorphosed into faith. The other friend saw things really too great, too terrifying, and too wonderful to explain here. But Jesus revealed his love in her place of fear and profound shame. He revealed his presence and body broken and bloodshed with her in the box. He revealed himself, the judgment of God and wisdom of God. In a vision, she, she asked him, I asked her to ask him, she, she asked him, why are you here? And she heard him answer, to be with you. That's the shepherd. And that's the judgment of God. And then he showed her that he had taken her out of the box and made all things new and perfect love cast out fear and we could not help but worship. Just could not help it. We justified God. See, this earth is a box. And your flesh will be buried in, in the box or burned in, in the fire. Jesus will bear your flesh to destruction. But even now he gives you himself and he is the life. Paul writes that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth in order to fill all things. That would include every dark corner in the sanctuary of your heart. 
His judgment was revealed on a tree in the middle of the garden, and his judgment is revealed in the sanctuary of your heart. When you see it, you will stop justifying yourself. That's why you're so afraid, always trying to justify yourself. When you see it, you will stop trying to justify yourself, and you will start justifying him. We've all sinned, and we will all die, and yet it's all according to plan that God might reveal his judgment, that he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our iniquities, and the Lord, which is himself, has laid our iniquities, our sorrows, our griefs uh, upon him, the iniquity of us all, that he chooses to die in our place and give us his life, that all of us might trust our Creator and rest in his breath and enjoy him forever. One day they will put your body in a box, If you will not look at God's judgment, I think you'll probably stay in the box for a time. But if you've come to trust God's judgment, you won't stay in the box, for you will open your eyes and you will see Jesus in the box, and then your box will become his box. Your box will become his box like that tomb in the garden, and you will rise from the box and never die again. He's already in the box, waiting for you to open your eyes. The fear is temporal. The faith is eternal. It completes ha'adam, the Adam, in the image of God. So how do you get over your fear of being buried alive in the box? You open the eyes of your heart and you see Jesus in the very same box. How do you conquer fear and grow faith? Well, you use the faith you've already got, which may be like only a seed. You didn't create it, someone planted it in you. But, but you use the faith you've already got to expose yourself to the judgment of God. You come here every weekend to watch it in the sanctuary. That's why you come here. You read about it in your Bible, and I know it scares you at times, but don't stop. Keep, keep reading. You stand before it as you pray. You even feel it when you love the last and the least of these, his brethren. I, I often find it really difficult to trust God and almost impossible to worship. And then I remember Jesus in the box, body broken and bloodshed. I remember that night when I saw Jesus in the box with my friend, and I can't help but worship. I begin to trust. I justify God. So do not fear death. Do not fear pain. Do not fear the Republicans. Do not fear the Democrats. Do not fear global warming. Do not fear those people that want to take your guns. Fear God. Your father says, do not fear any of those things. Fear only me. You fear only me, so you will see me. You will hear me. You will understand my judgment. This is my judgment. Have your attention? <laughs> On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. This is the judgment of God. Come to the table, tear off a piece, dip it in the cup, and place it in your box. 
This is the judgment of God. This is the commandment of God. God has your attention now, right? He has your attention. He says, don't fear anything else. You fear me, and this is my commandment. No more fear. Only faith. Only love. Eternal life. This is the judgment of God. So what does God want from you? He wants you to see it everywhere. For everything is dependent on this. It's the foundation of all creation. Your Father wants to give you Himself and all things with Him, but to receive Him and all things with Him, you must trust His judgment. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. They are both the judgment of God, and that's wisdom. Not dead law, but a living lover reigning on the throne in the sanctuary of your heart. And so pray with me. Judgment of God, decision of God, commandment of God, Prince of Peace, wisdom of God, word of love. Love, come and take your place on the throne in the sanctuary of my heart. kids were little, I remember that I was like almost thankful for their fears that they obtained out in the world because their fears seemed to send them to me. They'd come to me with their fears. And then I would find a way, I'd use different words, but I'd find a way to say this to them. Don't fear the dog next door. 
I mean, there are all kinds of fears. Uh, Coleman, stop fearing the wind. Stop, the house is going to be, stop fearing the vacuum. Don't fear the vacuum, fear the vacuum cleaner. Don't, don't fear the kids on the bus. Don't fear their judgment. I don't want you believing their judgment. Do not fear them. You fear only me. Do, do I have your attention? You fear only me. Look at me, look at me. Fear only me. Now listen to my judgment. I love you. And I will spend the rest of my life trying to prove that to you. I love you. Now go play. You know, that's why we come here every week. You go out in the world, you obtain all kinds of fears, and then you come to this place, and I'm the preacher. You're the ecclesia. I'm the ecclesiasticator or whatever, how Solomon said it. My job is not to give you good parenting tips or uh, to tell you who to vote for. Or, uh, I mean, that may all be part of the discussion, but my job is to remind you of the Father's judgment. I am love, and I love you, and I will not stop being who I am, and my judgment is eternal. Everything else changes, but I do not change and my judgment does not change. Believe my love. I will spend the rest of your life proving it to you. That's called the gospel. So I'll say it again, believe it, but I know you don't believe it, and he'll spend the rest of your life proving it to you, and you will believe it. That's even more gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.